You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the audiobook version of Michael Carlin's All the F's I Cannot Give. Now available for purchase through iTunes, Audible, and Amazon.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to share with you my interview with singer, songwriter, and author, Delma Garvey, whose book, The Freshman Survival Guide, makes a great gift to anyone you might know who's going off to their freshman year at college. Now, I met Bill many years ago when he was the editor for an online magazine called Busted Halo. And I thought that given the time of year, you know, when kids are heading out to college campuses far and wide, now would be a great time to uncork his story. Now, I'm putting my Mike the Marketer hat on right now. And, you know, his book, The Freshman Survival Guide, is just a fantastic example of finding some white space in the publishing world. So if you do a search for books about college, you're going to find a number of books that are actually designed to help students get into college. But there are very few resources out there that are going to help them once they land on campus. And that's why his Freshman Survival Guide has sold north of 100,000 copies. And just to digress for a minute, I've got two nephews who are both heading off for their freshman years in college this week. Uh, my sister's son, Jack, is leaving this morning, uh, as I record this, uh, for his freshman year at Mitchell College. And my wife's brother's son, Ryan, is leaving on Thursday for uh, the University of Virginia, UVA. Uh, birthplace, by the way, of the Kappa Sigma fraternity. And I know that the, the two of them are going to have some tremendous adventures and, and a lot of fun, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, college is a lot of work. But they're going to have a lot of fun, too. Uh, it gets me to thinking, is going back to school something I would want to do? And I, and I don't mean like going back for like a PhD, which, of course, actually is something I, I'd love to do um, if I had the opportunity. But, I mean, going back and reliving those four years of my undergraduate and I think the answer is no. I mean, why? while it would be fun um, and certainly less stressful than life is right now, I mean, look, I, I'm a self-employed guy. I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of stress in my life. There's also a lot of happiness. And I don't know that I would want to go back and, and relive those four years. I mean, I guess if I had the benefit of everything I've learned since then, um, it's fair to say I'd have a very different college experience. I don't know if it'd be better or worse, actually, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think that if, if a genie popped out of a lamp and, and gave me three wishes, if uh, going back to um, going back to college as an undergraduate would actually even uh, you know place in the top ten wishes that I that I'd wish for. Uh, I'm curious to what you would do, though. I mean, is, is going back to school something you would do um, in terms of reliving those undergraduate years? Let me know. Michael.Carlin at UncorkingAStory.com. 
uh, before I play the interview with Bill, um, which I know you're all eager to hear, I do want to let you know that the audiobook version of my first person comedy, All the F's I Cannot Give, F does stand for what you think it stands for, by the way. Uh, the audiobook version of All the F's I Cannot Give is now available for sale on Amazon, iTunes, and Audible. Mike Dawson, who you might recognize as the voice of the Adam Carolla Show, did a fantastic job narrating the book. And you can listen to the first chapter by clicking on the audio player on the right-hand side of this blog post where uh, this interview appears. So I hope you uh, take a a few minutes and do that. Uh, If you like the book, always appreciate you purchasing it. It would be great. Um, Anyway, so enough about me. Here is my conversation with Bill McGarvey. Now, I just want to give you a heads up. As we come into the interview, Bill and I are talking about our mutual admiration for comedian Jim Brewer, who who Bill's duo, uh, The Two Horsemen, opened for last year. So, without any commercial interruptions, here's my interview with singer, songwriter, and author, Bill McGarvey. Right, so my buddy, right, my buddy Mike and I have a little side project called The Two, uh, Two Horsemen, which um, is based, um, Mike and I are both songwriters, and Mike grew up really in the heavy metal world and loved it, and, you know, as he got older, um, he basically went back and explored all the old metal songs he loved. And he, um, he got me involved. And so we have a duo guitar and drums and we've done two videos, one for uh, Metallica's four horsemen and one for, uh, you got another thing coming by Judas priest. Oh, nice. And they're, they're very different takes, but if you go to two horsemen, um, on, uh, trying to think on, uh, on our, uh, there's a, uh, fa- uh what is it? It's, it's a YouTube page. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of cool. It's, uh, we haven't done a third one yet. We have a bunch of, um, uh, what do you call it? We have a bunch of, um, other songs, including, um, including, uh, uh, that one, a live wire. Uh, and what else? I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll send you the link, but it's, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been interesting, you know. Were you guys opening for somebody? Do I remember that? Oh, correctly? yeah, that's right. So yeah, we did. Yeah, but well, Jim Brewer, um, Jim Brewer works. Mike, my buddy Mike was in his band. Okay. So, um, you know, so uh, Mike, um, we he did like a residency at the uh, where was it? Was it um, at the uh, Knitting Factory? in uh in brooklyn okay um and uh so um yeah he uh he had us opening for him uh for a while for like a month and then um yeah it was just sort of kind of funny so we did that and uh i'm trying to find the darn link but anyway uh yeah so that that was fun and jim and mike, mike was in his band for a long time and uh now he's uh now he's not. My, I guess Brewer's not doing that project right now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, it's, I actually have a, a Jim Brewer story. I was in um, Louisville, Kentucky, doing some work. I was running focus groups for a big laundry company, uh-huh. and and I had the the, the evening off, so I, I looked. I, I'm a big comedy guy, so I was looking to see who was coming to their local comedy club in in, in Louisville, and Jim Brewer was going to be there, and I'm like, 
I love Jim Brewer, a big fan, loved him on SNL, but I've also seen him stand up a few times. So I, I go to the show. I'm like one of the only guys there alone, um, oh, which, yeah. you know, I was on the road and that's what I did. But there was an old guy there. And I'm like, okay, uh, that guy looks lonely. I'm going to buy that guy a beer. So I bought this old guy a beer. He turned around, he toasted me, and we watched the show. So at the end of the show, Brewer's doing kind of a meet and greet in the back. Um, So I I had bought his CD, or DVD rather. Um, So I had him sign it, took a picture with him. (laughs) And uh, then I have another drink with his warm-up guy was just hanging out at the bar. So I was having a cocktail with him, just shooting the breeze. Uh And next thing I know, like everyone has left, and then Brewer is pushing this old guy out on a wheelchair out of the the vet. It was his dad. His Um, dad died a couple years ago. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that, but it's funny. That that was my one Jim Brewer story where I I bought his dad a beer in in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, that's funny. That's really (laughs) funny. He'd love to hear that. So, where, I mean, where, where, how did this all begin? So, I mean, you, I know you're, you're a writer um, in terms of, uh, you know, the Freshman Survival Guide, but also I know America Magazine, a lot of your stuff um, kind of shows up, uh, you know, is, is published in there. When, when did you start writing? When did you realize that you, you wanted to, to, to try and make a living out of writing? Yeah. I, well, it's completely backwards, to be honest with you, Michael. It's, it's, uh, it's not, I have a lot of friends who are novelists or writers who are obsessed with writing a book. Um, and I wasn't at all. In fact, I, mean, I was an English major in college um, because I just like talking about books and I'm just, I was good at it. And, um, but I was really, really into music and played, I was a drummer back then in college a long time ago and loved being in bands. And, and you know, right after college, I moved to New York to, try to hook up with a band. And, and to be honest, I uh, did that for a while, played with a ton of bands, made some records with some folks back in the day. And, um, and then, uh, but then I realized, you know, really like the thing that when some bands were on to good things or had record deals would break up, I realized I wanted to kind of run my own show more. So I started so- songwriting with a friend of mine and we built our own band and then a band called Valentine Smith back in the nineties and we got some attention, made about three records and toured a bit and, and, um, you know, put a lot of our, every blood, sweat and tears into that. And then the band broke up as they do about, for about seven years and three records. And, um, you know, I, I still love writing songs. I love the idea of writing songs. And to me, songs, just like Tom Waits said, songs are mini movies for your ears. And I always just love the idea of creating an ambient, a feel, a vibe, and a story. Uh, and then, but what happened was I got into, I was looking for some work after the band broke up and I got involved with a small magazine that was starting to grow called book back in the early two thousands. And I got on there and, and they asked me to kind of managing edit at the magazine. And that just really shot me into this whole area where I was meeting a ton of people in publishing and a ton of people. I was, I was working on a magazine. So every month we, or every other month we had to come up with, an entire new slate of articles, get writers, get the articles finished, you know, pitch good ideas, get good cover stories, get great photography. And I, uh, it really pivoted me into the world of publishing, um, which is then how I did that for a couple of years and met a ton of people about writing. And what I realized was I was using the same muscles to make a magazine that I used to make songs and records and perform it was the same muscle, just used slightly differently. It was like you have a bicep and you either pull up or you can push out. 
And, um, and so I realized that they were the same muscles just being used differently. And I really liked that. They were both very creative uh, and, and sort of entrepreneurial in a certain way. So like when you were, when you were a kid or even when you were in college, like, did you ever think that you would, you know, be a guy with a desk job or was it always kind of going into like, like a creative type field? Um, yeah, I don't know what I ever thought. I probably was terrified of the idea of a desk job, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I, I probably, I mean, I was very filled with coming out of college with the idea of, you know, you have one life, you've got to, you know, do what you can. If you've got one life, you know, this is, this is probably based on my, maybe how I grew up in a very Catholic family. You got one life, what's it going to be? You know, what are you going to do with this one life you have? And so, uh, not that I, I have plenty of family and friends that work behind desks and, and sometimes I work behind a desk too, but I was not particularly interested in that for my own life. And, and playing music was always that passion. The, notion, the desire, the desire to express oneself was always myself was always paramount. Where, so where, where actually, why don't we dial it back to, to kind of your family life and where you grew up. So where, where did you grow up? Um, and when did you actually first discover a love for music? Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia and, um, uh, the, uh, I discovered it when I was, I think my, my first real memory and it's, it's funny, it's music, but it's, it's, as I've gotten older, I realized it's more than music. I do. I remember hearing a record, a little single 45 back when they made those vials. I was like really little, but I was at a friend's house, a friend's of the family's house. My mom was friends with her, with, with their mom and they had a bunch of kids. I'm one of five. They were, they had seven kids, I think. And uh, the Mayox, Mrs. Mayox, the really beautiful lady, I kind of had a crush on her. I was young, <laughs> and yet this this little this little song called "Simple Simon Says," done by the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, which was essentially the same band that did the Archies, Sugar Sugar. It was a studio band out of New York. Of course, I knew nothing about that, but uh, they had this little 45. I remember playing it and dancing in the living room like a maniac because just the rhythm and the song and the melody just just. I loved it. My little four-year-old brain just exploded. And I remember playing, playing again, playing again. Play. I don't know if you've ever been with a kid and they love a song. Playing again, they just get so excited. And I can remember the, the little the figure on the, the 45, you know, label and everything. I just remember being transported and transfixed by that. And I just think that was sort of the first little inclination of like, the, the it's, it's kind of a form of transcendence, which I wasn't really aware of. I would never have language for it. But it's a form of moving beyond yourself into another realm. Some people will do it with with other things, drunk and drink, drink and drugs, or or any number of things. But I think music for me was a really transcend, transcendent kind of experience. So that was really young, and and I really just I hated piano lessons when I got older. I sucked at it, and I uh, I decided to take up drums in high school because I just wanted to be a part of this. And so I just was, you know, it's like you don't really know you're studying music, even though you're, you just are because you're just obsessed with it. Yeah. How to put these things together. And so eventually I got into songwriting before I even knew how to play a guitar. I was writing songs uh, in my head. And so I was always kind of, and I was always built, putting together bands and writing songs and getting gigs and things like that. So just, a, I think a, a determination to express, to, to get, to get whatever you were feeling inside out, you know? Do you remember, just because you're a music guy, do you remember the, the first time, you know, when you had your own money, do you remember what the first album was that you bought with your own money? 
Oh yeah, it was like vividly. It was Tom Penn and the Heartbreakers, Damn the Torpedoes, oh, the Refugee, and um, uh, even the Losers and Complex Kid and, and Louisiana Rain. And here comes my girl. That record, I wore the grooves off probably literally because we back to those Kate Park star. I've written about this in other places, but that album, the songs, I knew every drum lick on that song and still those songs still do. Um, and I just played it incessantly on my parents, you know, console stereo in the hallway and just obsessed on the, everything about it. The pictures I'd never seen anybody like this or heard anything like this. So it was, I was obsessed with damn the torpedoes still probably the seminal record for me. That I yeah I saw Tom Petty last summer when he was touring with yeah, Joe Walsh. Yeah. Um, last I, probably last June they came up to Hartford, and yeah. my brother and I went. I did, did another couple of people. We we had such a great time. And for me, like what I was astounded, I had no idea Joe Walsh was opening up. And I was thinking to myself, God, why is Joe Walsh opening up for anybody? First of all, because I'm a huge yeah. Joe Walsh fan. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but. Petty man, every single song he played, um, knew all the words to. Uh, I mean, because you just don't realize how big that guy's catalog is and how popular, you yeah. know, he, he all those songs are. And then just a few months later, I'm I'm running a project in in with a client, and you know, somebody knocks on the door and is like, "You're not going to like this," but Tom Petty, they just found him dead. I'm like, "Oh my oh, gosh!" Yeah, it's just horrible, horrible story. No, it was tough. You could be, I saw him many times, and the reaction from my friends was always the same. It was like, holy moly, I had no idea I knew so many songs of Tom Petty because he was always sort of next to Springsteen, regarded as sort of maybe a second runner. But And I love Springsteen as well. But um, no, Petty understood the importance and the power of simplicity in song. He just did inherently, and and, and he was brilliant in that. So it was a really – I'd seen him many times, so – I'm sorry I didn't see that last tour, but I, I uh, it, it was a shock when he died. I wrote an article. I was like losing, losing an older brother that I never met. Yeah, God, it's it's amazing how artists you know have that that kind of, people we've never met you know have yeah. can have that impact on us. I remember after Michael Jackson died, I wrote something um, yeah. which wound up in the newspaper, and it's like I wasn't even the world's biggest Michael Jackson fan, but you know, growing up in you know when I grew up in the '80s. You couldn't help but, you know, be in tune yeah. with with kind oh, of yeah. what that engine was running. I mean, that was... Oh, uh, absolutely. No, it's just powerful. And these people do make enormous impacts on us, or they had. Um, I think, you know, media has changed a bit, obviously. But um, the level of, of fame and, and, and uh, success that, that Michael Jackson was, you know, got, was, is, I'm not sure that'll ever happen again. Yeah. But... Uh, and even, you know, Tom Petty, to a certain degree, that sort of level of a huge audience like that, I think it's going to be harder and harder to come by. They're not going to be another Beatles, I think. Right. Because media is just fragmented. But no, I, these people, these people, yeah, they, something gets in your imagination and just won't quit, you know? And so that that's what happened for me. And I think it happens for a lot of people. People end up doing this stuff. I'm sure you feel the same way about why, why, if you're going to, why would you bother writing a book? Right or a whole album or a song and record it and get it. If you just, you do it for the love of it because it's just, you just have to do it. Um, because otherwise, I mean, yeah, making money is always nice, but you know, 
for the most part, we know that most of these things don't make any money at all. <laughs> that, that, that's what I say. It's like you don't do it for the money. I mean, very few people can live off of doing this for a living. I mean, it is yeah. it is your uh, it is so, needle in yeah. a haystack. Freshman, Freshman Survival Guide has done really. We've sold like over a hundred thousand copies of that, so it's done really well. We're making royalties, which is great. Um, but you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean that that actually that was so random. I was not even expecting it. So, um, you know, which was great. It was just such a random sort of thing that happened at this place with Busted Halo. And, and oh, that's when I actually, you and I, our paths yeah. crossed. Well, yeah, I wanted cool. to ask you about Freshman Survival Guide. And I was going to do it later on, but since you brought it up, let's talk yes. about it now. You know, how did that idea come to you? Because to me, it's like there's a ton of books out there about how to get into college and, and very few about what to do once you're there. Um, so how did, but, but that's, that's kind of me projecting, but how did you guys come up with that idea? And, and what do you think was the key to the success? I was uh, running this online magazine called bustedhalo.com, which is really for seekers, spiritual seekers. It's owned by a Catholic organization and um, it's still around actually, but I left about eight years ago. And um I would always have to create a ton of content, as you know, as somebody's a content creator yourself. And so we had a ton of content every day to try to have something new. And I had a, a contributing editor named Nora Bradbury Hale, who lived up in Rochester. And she worked with a lot of youth. She was a youth minister for uh, a parish. And so she had a lot of kids who were in their teens that she'd known for years. Uh, and uh, and so she was sort of really good at that sort of hands-on kind of connection uh, to young people. Uh, and I said, I needed content for the beginning of the school year, some editorial meeting by phone. And she said, well, I do this thing every summer because I've been doing this for so long that I saw all these kids crashing and burning, you know, when they went to college, you know, good kids who just end up failing out because they screwed up and they, or they just partied their self out of it. And, and she said, we, so she said, I decided to do something about it. I took, all the kids who had done well in college who'd been part of my program and I brought them in in the summertime and had them sit in a room with all the kids who were about to go to college and told them to ask any questions they wanted. And I just said, man, we should just do a bullet point list and we'll call it the freshman survival guide for the website. And that was the first year. And it just it exploded after that. You know what I mean? It became, it, we did it the first year as a really simple list, downloadable PDF type thing. And then over the next couple of years online, it just grew and grew and grew till we had tens of thousands of downloads of it um, in terms of the PDFs that we were putting out. And we got it from a publishing company and, and just really decided to create this, this whole book. And it's now in our second sort of updated edition, um, which has done very well. So it was really, really, I, you know, I, I knew the idea was a good book idea early on, but, you know, to get from there to here was definitely a long journey. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to have the idea and another thing to kind of see it through execution and then another thing to sell it to somebody who actually believes in it as much as you do. And those stars seem to have aligned for you. They did. I I don't think that I'm, I'm really clear about this, though, man. I, and I, I, I talk to enough authors out there that I think it's true. Now, you look to John Irving or Anne Rice or any of these people, they might, they're in a different world right now, but um, in terms of success. But nobody is going to care about your work more than you. And I, I have friends and I, I you know, because basically um, we sold our book, but uh, we did to a big company, Hachette, 
uh, book group and uh, you know, they're a great publisher and they did a great job with the book, but they have a two week window with their public relations people that are, pre- you know, to do puppy do press and then it's on you. So what the internet did, why we came from an internet company to begin with to, to this was that you create an, an ability to, for you to already market yourself and to create a platform. And, and I think that's super, it's incredibly important. I mean, cause they don't, Ultimately, book companies often, sadly, don't know how to market, and uh, or they know a very specific market, which is to Amazon and to your general readers at Barnes and Noble or whatever. They don't understand niches and niche markets in the same way that I did, and I knew that we would have a lot of kids who are graduating high school who would get this as a gift, or their senior class would get this as part of a end of the school year donation from the school, or for, certainly freshmen first year experience programs for colleges. And that, that's what's happened. But a lot of that really came through us, through me just sort of beating the pavement in terms of letting folks know this is a great resource. And it's a renewable resource because every year there's a new crop of freshmen. Right. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant in, in that regard. When when you were selling it to Hachette, did, did you get an agent involved at all? Or did yeah. you negotiate? Okay. No, Joelle Del Borgo um, is, our, is the agent on the book. And, uh, you know, she's very well respected and she's a good, um, a good nonfiction, uh, agent. Um, but yeah, no, so, so she was very helpful in just getting in front of people and, you know, she was, she definitely believed in the book. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but ultimately, you know, whether it's, you know, our, our, the editor who bought the book ended up leaving the company before we published it. So it was, you know. It's just you, you don't really have it. You, you just have to keep doing it. You know, you're going to be, you're, you're always going to be your own best champion. Yeah. If somebody cares more about your book than you do, then your book is in trouble. Because you know, one of the things that I always love talking to, to kind of best selling authors about is, you know, how, how they feel about the role of the agent and the importance of the agent. Because with, with self publishing kind of where it is right now, I think that the stigma, you know, that, that may have been there 10 years ago is, is a lot less. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, and, and with self-publishing, I mean, no agents needed. Um, but but I, I always kind of cling to this idea that if, if you really want to kind of call yourself an author, kind of quote unquote, as a job title, or if you want to have like a decent living from your writing, there's really no way around getting an agent and then getting a publishing contract, right? Um, I mean, I, I don't know enough about the self-publishing industry right now. I mean, I know people have done it. Um, people have asked me to help them with book projects and I'm happy to do that if I have time, um, which I often don't, but, um, I would say that a big, what a big publishing company does and really what we've gotten down to in terms of brass tacks is, you know, yes, right now we, you and I could write a book and we could put it on Amazon and people could download it, but it really is the tree falling in the forest. If nobody hears about it, you know, does it even happen? And what a big book company like Hachette is, does is they make is every time um, any Barnes Noble I've been in across the country has my book, um, and uh, and that it is they already have existing relationships with um, with uh, Amazon and other tons of other retailers, and there's just a legitimacy there that helps. You know, I mean, there's always there are always going to be these sort of outlier success stories of other self published books. I mean, wasn't the Shack self published? I know that was. I know the Martian originally was, and and um, <coughs> yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey, I believe the first iteration of that was. And oh, really? I mean, those all kind of went to become. Obviously, some books, some of those are better than others, but um, 
you know, no, I think they lead hard. to success I think, stories. I think, and I, I think, I think what it, what a, what a public screen does is help gets it into, into get to press, you know, initially because there's that, there is a vetting process that goes on and they say, Oh, this com- this big company thinks this is worthy of your time and attention. Uh, and it's a good product. And so that really helps, I think. But, um, that said, you know, I, the number of people who actually earn out their advance, like we have and gotten royalties is less than 10%, I think, um, of books. So we're lucky. Um, and also, uh, yeah, we're, we're lucky. I guess we say we were lucky. Um, but yeah, no, so it's, it's, it's really hard to, to sell copies. And, and, you know, at the same time, I joke that I feel like often when I'm dealing with publishing companies, I'm dealing with dinosaurs who are chain smoking and who don't know and eating Funyuns for breakfast. <laughs> they don't, they don't know they're dying. They're not even aware that they're dying. You know, I mean, they don't even get that. Like I'll have these, I've had, you know, early on I had these discussions with the people at the publisher company where I'd be like, that's crazy. You know, we shouldn't hold this back. This isn't hurting our sales. This is helping our sales about having relationships, having creating or give, giving out a little bit of content for free is, is all part of the plan. Um, I don't think it cannibalizes sales. I think it enhances sales. Um, so it's interesting to see just, you know, good people at the publishing company. I like them a lot, but um, it does become hard. Sometimes these, these publishing companies are struggling for relevance and, and, and it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, to some extent it is a bit of an outdated model, business model. You know, and I think, you know, how much I, I mean, I, I like to buy a print book every now and then, but nine times out of 10, if I'm buying something, it's going on to, you know, my, my iPad, um, Kindle reader, whatever, because that's just the way I, I love to have a book to read. If I'm on an airplane and I need to, and I'm done with one, I need to download another. Um, for me, it's, it's just a matter of, of portability and ease. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once you take printing out of the equation, Mm -hmm. um, and and things are distributed digitally. Now I can get a book in in every online bookstore there is with a couple clicks of a button, and then you know it's a little more than that. But you know I don't need somebody. Distribution is no longer the problem. Um, the problem is kind of cutting through the clutter of the millions of people who are self-publishing crap on you know Kindle and and, and other right. and other platforms. Right. How do you differentiate? How do you differentiate? It's always the question. And that's really hard. It's really hard, you know? I mean, our book, our book had its own angle for it. I mean, and, and it, was, it was basically how to make the transition to college, which for a lot of 18-year-olds is by far the biggest, biggest change their lives of experience, you know, for the most part, unless they've had a serious illness or death of a parent or something. So it's a huge transition. And we know that a lot of kids really don't do well. So... We knew that, and, there, and when, once we got the book deal, I went out and bought every book in our category um, <coughs> because, <coughs> pardon me, I wanted to see what they were doing. So we read all the all of our competition and, and honed in on what made us special and different. And ours is really it's about mind, body, and spirit. It's really kind of holistic. Yeah, and nobody else was doing that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I look back. To, I mean, I've been out of college now twenty five years, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I've got two nephews who are leaving, you know, the next two weeks to, to go off to their freshman year. And I, one of them is going to UVA, a little small school in Virginia. 
University of Virginia. It's a great school. It's great. <laughs> and then my uh, my other nephew's going up to uh, Mitchell College up in New London, Connecticut. Are they are they, are they twins? No, no, no. Uh, actually, one is my sister's son, and then one is my wife's brother's son. So, oh, okay. Um, What's the second one? What's the second uh, school name? I'm sorry. Uh, it's a Mitchell College up in um, it's in New London, Connecticut. Small school oh, up in, in New London, Connecticut. Oh, great. And um, you know, I th- and I and I've been thinking about this a lot because I mean, I I was pretty I was a pretty well adjusted kid, uh, yeah. and going into college, it wasn't necessarily a hard transition. I mean, sure, there was the you know, missing home for three days, and then all of a sudden, it was off mm-hmm. to the races. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many of my friends who were very popular, actually, they weren't really, really my friends in, in high school because I was not part of the popular crowd. Probably hard mm-hmm. to imagine, but these guys, you know, Mr. You know, captain of the football team, I'd say 50% of the people who were like super duper popular, they wound up dropping out within the first few months of school. Like they yeah. lost their freaking minds. Yeah, um, they did. It's so much freedom. Uh, and in many ways, far too much freedom. They they have often they live very structured lives before they get to college, and then they realize, holy moly, nobody's here to wake me up in the morning. Nobody's <laughs> here to say, got to go to class. Right. Um, that's one of the reasons why some of our chapters that we hit the hardest in the book are about going to class, going to class, going to class, because we know the correlation between people succeeding or not. We know that that it's almost the largest. Um, reason uh, is they stopped going to class. Oh, my girlfriend broke up with me. I stopped going to class. Oh, I got a couple of bad grades and I got depressed. I stopped going to class. Um, uh, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't get out of the house. I was, I was obsessed with video games, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I stopped going to class. And and so we try to hit, you know, even if you don't feel like it, go to class, go to class, go to class. Um, because the alternative is often crashing and burning. Yeah. So, Simply is, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Would you, I mean, you're, you're a couple years older than me, but do you ever think about like whether or not it'd be a good thing if you could do it all over again and can ever live your college years? Would you ever want that time machine to, to kind of go back and do it or no? That's a great question, Michael. Um, No, I, I, well, I, I, you know, I played a lot of music in college. I was in, tons of musical band and different bands and even the concert band at George, I went to Georgetown and, and they had a concert band that I played drums in and a pep band. And also was in a ton of other bands that played around campus and other things and, and wrote some original music and all that good stuff. That was great. Um, you know, I remember feeling college is really pretty idyllic, you know? Uh, but, um, I wish I'd read, I wished, because I am, I, I didn't really, as much as I was an English major, I don't think I really loved reading until well after college. Right. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think I, because in college, I think um, it was about getting good grades. It was about doing what you do as a kid, which is you're a student and you're good at being a student. So you try to continue to be good at a student as being a student. It wasn't like, I think I, my, I certainly read way more broadly and more, far more, uh, um, intentionally after college when I, when books somehow, because you had a little bit of life under your belt, somehow took on a different meaning. Yeah. You know, they hit you in ways in the same ways that songs did. I would, I should say, or, and movies became the other thing, but they just sort of, it's all of a piece to me. They're, they're just slightly different approaches to the same effects. Yeah. I think about it. Like I, uh, I met my wife, um, 
a week into my freshman year in college. Um, so if I were to say that I would like to do it all over again, that probably not the right answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we'd have to edit that one out of this interview, but, uh, where did you guys go? Did you go to university of Connecticut? Where'd you guys we go? We did university of Connecticut, university Stores, of Connecticut. The big one, the big yep. campus. Yeah. Oh, the great. big one, the big one up there. And, um, yeah. you know, but it's like, I don't know that I would want to do the social thing again. Like, I think I got it all out of my system. Like when it was in 92, 96, rather, when I graduated, I was ready to go. Like I, I did, I did not feel sorry about leaving campus. I did everything I needed to do. I graduated with distinction, Phi Beta Kappa, all that Wow. Stuff that really doesn't matter in in the real world, I guess. Um, no, it's good to have. No, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not, it's not meaningless. No. But the one thing I wish I did more was explore other, like, social activities. Like, I did the fraternity thing. I didn't do much more other than that. Like, I was – and I, then I was stuck in the psychology, you know, labs for a few years, and I didn't really explore anything on beyond my major. You know, I, I wish I had taken some – you know, fine arts, you know, fine arts track, maybe, you know, for, for writing. Um, cause I didn't have any clue back then that, that I was even interested in, in writing. Yeah. Um, Who do you read? I mean, so I'm a big believer, you know, when I talk to people about how, what they write about it and I ask who they read or, or what, what music they make, what do you listen to? So who are the things that really kind of inspired you? So, I mean, now I read the, – the author I read most often is a guy named Carl Hyacin, who is oh, – um, Miami, right? Yeah, he's out of Miami. I grew up in South Florida. So, like – and every, every single one of his stories takes place down there. But what I love about him is that he always has these really offbeat heroes. Um, you know, they're not like your traditional, you know, knight in shining armor. They're, they're usually these very flawed individuals. And and the the antagonists are always super colorful. And to me, like, I I just love that quirky combination. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So a lot of him, a lot of Jonathan Tropper, Mm -hmm. um, Tess Gerritsen, who I've interviewed on this show, who writes uh, uh, medical thrillers. uh, Fantastic. (laughs) I mean, I love, you know, I breeze through those books. They're so great. Um, And they probably take a lot of research too. These medical thrillers, right? Well, she's a medical doctor, so she uh, she she kind of had it, and she actually wrote her first medical thriller when she was on maternity leave um, with her first child, and uh, it happened to uh, her first medical thriller. She anyway, she wrote something, and then it, it her 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 literary career exploded after that. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I like but I like all types, and then then I always pepper in a little nonfiction in between uh, in between books. I read a lot. And I, I don't know about you, but I've started to get into what can I can I hang up for a second? Yeah, sure. Um sorry. Uh I um I just got done driving back, so I was away. And uh I I've been getting into it's funny because I draw I'm in the car a lot. I get into Audible and I listen to a lot of stuff too. I don't know if you're into that, but I <laughs> I'm I'm plowing through books on 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 uh, Audible. I really like just like the Isaacson biographies of Einstein and Ben Franklin, I cracked, you know, cranked through on, on Audible. Regardless. So regarding Audible, my uh, latest comedy just this morning was uh, released to Audible. Um, really? Did you record it yourself? No, no, no. I hired, um, I don't know if you, you know who Adam Carolla is, but, you know. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. great. He's funny. So his uh, his voiceover guy is a guy named Mike Dawson. Um, okay. He's the voice of, of the show, and I hired him. Because oh, wow. I I knew that that voice was my character. Like I I just knew it, and 
I made a deal with him, and uh, he accepted, and it just got done a couple weeks ago just editing, and Audible just accepted it, and it went up for sale this morning. So, Oh, that's great. What's your call? I'll check that out. Uh, I, will, uh, I will text it to you after this. I don't that's want great. to. I don't necessarily plug it during the interview, but um, – yeah, that's great. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's it's a funny, it's a comedy, and as long as you're not easily offended, um, yeah, you might me. you might like it. Not at all. Not at all. You might like I, it. The reason I know the reason I know uh, Corolla at all is because it really mostly the Howard Stern show. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I listen to Stern a lot, and he uh, he hasn't been on in a while, but he used to be on a lot. You know, well, Corolla took over for Stern on the West in the West Coast markets um, when oh, when Howard went over to. We got David Lee Roth here in New York. They wow. got Adam Carolla out in um, in California and, and West Coast, um, and uh, I've been too well, though, right? well, and not for any, not for either of them, <laughs> not yeah. for either. How look? Those are shoes that are too big to fill. Well, and know? I think that that comes down. That really becomes much more about old media versus new media. The, the, it's not that those guys can't be good because I think Adam Carolla's a funny guy. I just don't think you're going to be able to build the empires that have been built. In, in the eighties that were built by the Howard Stearns of the yeah. world or the U2s of the world um, or certain side, you know, it just, there's just the ability to be that big and get bigger. is super hard now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't believe Beyonce is as big anywhere near as big as Michael Jackson was. No, no. Or as important, you know, no. I don't think our biggest artists in that sense are as big as our biggest artists were, you know, in the eighties. No. And it, it's, you know, I'm living now through my kids. I've got three 16 year olds. And yeah. just kind of listening to what they listen to. One of one of the three is really, really into music. And she and I go to, you know, I take her to see shows with her friends. Yeah. Um, and, and I go and some of them are, you know, some some guys or the people she listens to, some of them have some talent. They're pretty good. Um, some of them I, I need earplugs because I can't, <laughs> I just can't rally around it. But I, I do it to support her. But I, I you know. triplets? They're triplets. We do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're all very, very different? All different. All different. Very, Okay. All different, but like for example, actually one who we 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 saw Taylor Swift a few weeks ago. Okay. She puts on a phenomenal show, and she's a very good performer, songwriter. Um, Not surprising at all, yeah. Very very good show. Um, compare that to you know I took her to see Shawn Mendes, very talented, um, but a little more poppy and a little bit more teeny bopper, and wasn't wasn't as into it. And I'm, I'm looking to see, and I'm looking at him and. Look, I'm I'm outside of the target market for this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. But I'm, I'm I'm up in the ball with the old Boston, whatever the Boston Gardens called now. That's where we were. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, like I saw you two, you know, I don't know how many times, and right. this guy will never get to that level, right? I mean, never going to yeah. be that. To, I don't think we're ever going to see that again. I, I kind of think so. I think you're right. I think, and that's the interesting thing about publishing, though. I tell you this much. Because Michael Wolf, the guy who famously wrote Fire and Fury recently, wrote a great article 20 years ago about the music industry and really kind of foreshadowed everything that was going on. And essentially it was that the, the, pub, that the music business was going to become more like the publishing business, which meant that a success in the music business used to be like 300,000 copies is not a success. You know, a million, it was such a hit-driven business that it was a million – or these big, big numbers. And, you know, the joke was, you know, people who worked at Arista Records was that, you know, like, you know, Whitney Houston kept the lights on at Arista because she sold so many records. And that enabled them to put together other artists and try to see if that would stick on the wall. But um, the truth is, I think it's become much more like publishing where um, it's just smaller. What what constitutes a success is smaller. Yeah. And, um, 
and so the yeah you know, the entire infrastructure because it was so easy to share everything off the, over the internet the infrastructure behind the music business really just collapsed so uh, they're like a cautionary tale for the rest of the media platforms made more media companies well, yeah, then that, that that brings us to Lars back to Lars Ulrich uh, and his fight with Napster, you know, years ago. It's uh, but it, it's a shame because you know people artists can't make a living selling records anymore. I mean, even you know, you too, I'm sure they sell more than most, but they still have to survive. Not that these guys are going to starve, but no, you know, it's it's touring. I mean, it's touring and merchandise. You know, it's not necessarily the music that's that's going to be. Rolling Stones understood that decades ago that. Nobody's buying our new record. We put it out just so we have a reason to tour. Right. Um, and I think U2 is probably very similar. I think U2 still wants to be the biggest band in the world. Um, and I think that they uh, will aggressively forever go after it. I think they threw that as a point of pride. Hmm. But I think you're right. There used to be that bands would make records um, and they would tour to support the records. But now it's because the records would theoretically be on radio and sell a lot of copies – but now they, they literally make a record so they can go out on tour and make their money finally. Right. You know, it's just, it's a very different world. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, but that, that comes with, you know, how many different ways do we have of listening to music now? Like no one's going to the store to buy a physical, they're not buying, you know, damn the torpedoes on vinyl and, and playing it a billion I times. I totally, they don't. Yeah. Mute. Well, music has not become, has lost the cultural sort of import it had. 25, 30 years ago. It used to be that you'd see somebody walking around in a Depeche Mode t-shirt or Equin the Bunny t-shirt, and you kind of already had them sized up right. about the culture that they were interested in. Um, and I just think it's far less uh, identity-driven like it was 25 years ago. Yeah. I think, you know, your record collection did not constitute, you know, who you are as a person, which I think it was a little bit more back in the day. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so I, I think um, I think it just has a different place in culture. I well, think it has a different place, place in culture. You know, I go to my local music store. Um, you know, we, we have one small independent you know instrument store left here yeah. in, in Stanford, Connecticut, anyway. Oh, cool. And the guys who run it, I mean, it's a family. Their father, I mean, I bought my first guitar from the guy, you know, when yeah. I was 16. Um, and I, I pop in there and I actually wrote an article about their dad, um, that got published in the paper. A really amazing guy. But, um, I, I always like to go in there and shoot the breeze with, even if I'm not buying anything, I just like to shoot the breeze and talk music. Cause I've got so few people I can get into, you know, yeah, do, do conversations with about it. Any of your, are any of your kids friends in bands? None, none of them. Are not one. A band. They don't have like they used to when we, you know. No, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was be in a band. Like that's that's what it was. And I wasn't even a. I'm not even. I'm not a great musician. <laughs> you know, I just have the desire, which is one half of the equation. But yeah, you no, know, I mean, I was in so many. I played so much. I played in so many bands in college and, and after that. It was, um, you know, I didn't have to work. You know, in college and my job, I basically to play gigs and make enough money to get me by. You know, in college, um, so it was a different time. You know, people were hiring you. Um, whether it's clubs or, or parties or, or fraternities or sororities or whatever, um, they hire you for the event, you know, and uh, it's, it's just crazy. I don't think there's any place to, I mean, I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. There was Maxwell's club, which was here for decades and it was really legendary and they couldn't keep it open. You know, It's just, there's not the vibe. There's not the, the need for as much live music anymore. 
which is not as important to people, I don't think. Well, now, like, DJs are the big stars, you know, guys who come in with their with their Mac computer, you know, hook it up to some speakers. Maybe they have a fake turntable just for appearances. <laughs> and exactly. No, exactly. I think you're absolutely right, man. I think it's exactly the DJ. The rise of the DJ has been hugely important. Yeah. I, I don't pretend to understand it um, because, uh, you know, I don't follow it, you know, that that aggressively. But it's um, yes, the notion that a DJ is somehow a music maker is interesting. I mean, it's clearly legitimate, but. Uh, it, it kind of fascinates me that that's where rock start, where music musical sort of stardom is gone. You know? Yeah, that and that and YouTube. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, you got to wait for 120 minutes on MTV to catch these cool videos by the bands you liked, and now it's just like, guy who needs that, I'm just going to search for that on the web and find, you know, all my replacements videos in one place or the Radiohead videos all in one place. Right. Right. And, that was such a thrilling um, feeling, you know. It's just so. It's uh, yeah. So it's 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 just completely turned. Yeah, God, uh, I, I remember uh, waiting for Adam Curry to come on because he would he would run a show called a Hard Thirty or a Hard Sixty or Headbangers Ball or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. and you know I'd stay up and I'd watch it, and then you know cut to 1997 or 98. I'm working at an internet company. And walk into a meeting, and lo and behold, who's there but Adam Curry, who had obviously at that point he had left MTV, cut his hair, and right. was now like running like an internet marketing agency. Um, and he created the podcast, right? I think he was one of like the early innovators of. Holmes, who have been the kind of inventor of the podcast. Yeah, yeah I guess and he was on the Stern show not that long ago, a couple of years ago, talking about it. Interesting. Um, he's an entrepreneur. I think in his part of the world, he's a gargantuan star. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. he's no David Hasselhoff. Can we agree on that? I mean, he's no Hasselhoff in Germany. There's only one Hoff, man. <laughs> don't hassle the Hoff. Hassle and hassle the Hoff. I don't know if he's Harry Carey's German or is he, is he um, Dutch? I forget. But he, I don't know if he is German, but he's very big in Germany. Like when that Berlin Wall oh, yeah. came down, he was there singing, you know, songs for freedom. Oh, you know, yeah. Was, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, – but I just know his next kind of thing was the podcast – which I think he claims to have essentially invented. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's next for you, Bill? I mean, what, what do you got coming on writing wise or music wise or kind of what's, uh, what's, what's the next doing, chapter? I'm doing more, um, like I said, about the music wise, I'm trying to finish up the second short animated film around a song. Um, and I think I'll keep doing that if I can uh, come up with good ideas for some of these, some good visual ideas and story ideas for these songs. Um, so I'll have two, uh, two finished in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, beyond that, we'll have to work on an updated version of the book at some point because, um, you know, we did an updated version two years ago, I think it was. Can't remember. And usually it's like every four to five years, I think, where um, we need to update it so we'll get new information, new research, and we'll plug it all in and, and hopefully some new content ideas about what's growing on campus. Um, you know, so, so, um, you know, uh, yeah. So we, we need to keep our finger on that pulse somehow yeah. and yeah. Get, get, get in touch with these folks and get in a sense of like last time through when we did the, this newest research and up, research update, you know, one of the RAs, um, we have a thing called the, uh, interactive RA, the IRA, 
Um, and basically the idea is um, we talk to these different RAs about what's going on in the front lines in schools. And they say, well, you guys talk about, uh, you know, eating disorders, anorexia and all that stuff, but you never, um, you never talk about the men. And the truth is there are all these men with body dysmorphia in college and they're working out insane amounts to look like Zac Efron or whoever, you know, and, um, and just one woman. So this is really an issue for them. You know, this is really an issue that these folks, um, are, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's that these, these people aren't eating and they're over exercising. And, and it was just things like that, that I would not be as aware of that, that the, um, the food abuse or the, or the, um, yeah, you know, the sort of unhealthy relationship to, to food and to uh, your body would be so profound, you know, to both men and women. You know, Bill, I could say this with all honesty and look you in the eye and say this. Um, I get confused or mistaken for Zac Efron all the time, and it's really, <laughs> it's really yeah. not all that it's cracked up to be. So that's something that you should consider letting people know that it's exactly. really not what it, it, it seems, you know. It looks like an idyllic life, but, you know, it's not. They see my eight-pack abs and they go, Zach. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I mean. Zach. I get it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> There's you a know, lesson there. Well, I think it's even just, you know, we need so many of our great athletes and, and this sort of perfect body syndrome, I guess. I don't know. I mean, these guys are obsessed with being jacked up in terms of their arms, in terms of their legs. I think they take a lot of supplements and and all that crazy stuff. And, and it's, it, it's really the corollary to corollary to, you know, um, unattainable body images, you know? Yeah. Or yeah. Reasonably, I guess unattainable. Would be the word. And, and, and yeah, no, that, so those were kind of interesting little learnings as we went on that we have to feel like we update these things as they come. As we, and as we get research from governments or for any of our own research we do on, in terms of, um, uh, uh, sending out to colleges, you know, who, who will then work with their students to create a couple hundred answers for us and all that stuff. So, um, so we will have to do an update on the book in the next couple of years. And um, the times now, I still write for America magazine and I still do media work for people. And hopefully, you know, we'll get some more clients in that, that area and sort of create content. Really what I do really well, I think is help people create content around their idea and um, and make sure that that, get, that gets executed regularly. So, you know, you have – and that's kind of what we did when I, when I met you at Busted Halo, Michael. It was like, oh, you know, yeah, we've got this nice website. Um, what are we putting in those pipes, you know, and how often are we – are we putting something nourishing in there that people can use or not? And I think, you know, now more than ever is you've got to continually be um, reloading, so to speak, you know, uh, Reloading with new content, re-engaging people. So when I like all those things, they're all fun to me. They're all kind of entrepreneurial and interesting, you know. And uh, and very fulfilling, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, generally, yeah. I think it's really, really fulfilling. And you know, working for yourself is great. It sounds like you do the same thing, so you, you know some of that. But, um, yeah, no, I, I have, you know, definitely it's, it's, it's certainly fulfilling, that's for sure. Well, I say it's fulfilling and it's certainly great. And then when you have to pay that health insurance premium because you're self-employed and have a family of five, uh, that's when it doesn't become so great, Bill. Yeah, you get but it, you, get uh, you just have to work. You just have to work more. Yeah, 
<laughs> or change our country. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I agree. I paid my own health insurance way before, way before Obamacare came on. I've paid since like '94 um, for my own health insurance. So it's uh, it's a big nut. It's a big nut to crack. That's yeah. for sure. It's yeah. Crazy. Once it became more expensive than my mortgage on a home in Fairfield County, Connecticut. That's when I realized something's wrong. Really? No, it's, it's my biggest expense every month. But, you know, we're in a different situation. I've got three kids and a wife. Um, yeah. it's, it's, for my knowledge, you have no children. No, and, I have any kids. And I no wife. No, no wife. Not at the moment. If you know anybody, I'm definitely open. Well, there you go. Well, we'll, we'll see what this interview does for you. I, yeah, I'm very open and interested. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have a couple of kids. I love kids. I got 15 nieces and nephews, so I, trust me, I... I just got back from the shore. My friend's little kids were there, and we spent a couple of days down in uh, Long Beach Island with them. It was just such a blast. Yeah. So it's all creativity to me. It's all it's all of the peace. It's all of the transcending yourself and jumping into another reality. Well, with with that, we'll end it right there. How's that sound? Great, Michael. Thanks for sorry it took a while to nail this down, but thanks for following through on it. No, my pleasure. I'm glad we could do it. I'll send you a link when it's up. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Let me know what you think of those videos, too. I'll, I'll look at them right away. All right, buddy. So that's it. My interview with the very creative and entertaining Bill McGarvey. If you want to learn more about Bill McGarvey, check out BillMcGarvey.com. It's actually spelled just like it sounds. If you want to purchase his book, The Freshman Survival Guide, feel free to do so. Uh, on Amazon.com or wherever you buy books. It's, uh, it's, it's very widely available. And if you want to learn more about me, check out uh, michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. Also, as a reminder, the audiobook version of all the Fs I Cannot Give is now available at iTunes, Amazon.com, and Audible. For all of the hardworking people here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening. And until next time.